How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. After a brief debut in the early 20th century and a fleeting revival about 10 years ago, the third coming of the electric car is upon us. Electric vehicles or EVs promise lower operating costs, zippy performance, and less pollution than oil-powered cars. But EVs are expensive, and there's the complicated question of where to juice them up. When will public charging be widely available? How much will it cost? And what about range anxiety? Today, we welcome our live audience in San Francisco and four experts who will discuss a new paradigm for powering the personal mobility of Americans. We have Rob Bierman, Director of Global Energy Alliance at Better Place, Mike DiNucci, VP of Strategic Accounts at Coulomb Technologies, and Jay Friedland, Legislative Director at Plug in America, and Jonathan Reed, CEO of Ecotality. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for coming. Uh, Rob, let's begin with you. There's different models out there for how the batteries will be placed in cars. Some are swappable, some are fixed. Tell us about your model, a better place for swappable batteries, and then we'll talk about the other ones. Sure. So the easiest way to describe Better Place's business model is to draw an analogy with mobile carriers. So AT&T subsidizes your cell phone. You walk into an AT&T store, you buy a cell phone, they subsidize the cost of it, and you pay monthly for minutes. AT&T goes out and they either build or lease cellular infrastructure, and when you walk around and use your cell phone, you access that infrastructure. Better Place's model is very similar. We subsidize the cost of the car by purchasing the battery, and we go out and build or, in in the future, lease um, battery charging and battery swapping infrastructure, and you pay for miles that you drive. So if you drive 12,000 miles a year like the average American, you would get the 1,000-mile-per-month plan. Uh, And the model results in a couple of benefits, important benefits, for mass adoption of electric cars. The first one being that when you don't have to buy the battery as part of the car, it reduces the cost of the car significantly. Um, And the second one is that you also don't have to worry about the liability of the battery uh, as a a big, expensive piece in the car uh, with technology that you're uncertain about. And third, and perhaps most importantly with uh, the issue of range anxiety, is it enables a model where you can swap your empty battery for a full one without worrying about, you know, what's this new battery coming into my car? Did I just trade my battery for a worse one? You don't own the battery, so you're not worried about that. And instead of having to wait for four hours or 30 minutes or however uh, long it takes to charge your car, depending on how big of a power connection you're connected to, uh, it takes about a minute to swap an empty battery for a full one. So um, we are a global EV services company. We have operations in Israel, Denmark, Australia, and the U.S., and Japan. And uh, about nine months from now in Israel, there will be uh, infrastructure deployed throughout the entire country. You'll be able to buy a Renault Fluent switchable EV battery car and drive anywhere in Israel, switching your battery if you need to, charging at home mostly, and driving that car for the same amount of money as a gas car, same level of convenience, but without ever having to go to the gas pump. Jonathan Reed, uh, you're involved with most of the battery world. Most of the auto companies are placing their bets on a different model, where the battery is part of the car, purchased part of the car. And you're part of the EV project and received $100 million from the Department of Energy uh, to develop some centers around the country to get sort of critical adoption of electric vehicles. Tell us about what you're doing there. Uh, we basically believe in, in uh, charging with level two and level three in commercial locations. And that means faster charging? Level 2 is is 220, 240-volt okay. uh, charge, and level 3 is 480, fast charge, DC direct to the car. Um, and we're looking at, at, at building on a network up and down the West Coast and in other spots in the United States of chargers that are all interconnected, <coughs> networked, and pulling back all of this data under the DOE contract for um, an analysis of where people charge, when they charge, and what their charge habits are. Um, it's, we are going to blanket the West Coast uh, from Vancouver to Southern California to the Mexican border and build a highway of fast chargers that will allow people to tr- take whatever electric vehicle they have, pure electric vehicle, unlike uh, plug-in electrics, and be able to charge every 30 miles 
from the north to south range. And Mike Danucci with Coulomb, do you have a similar approach? Is there a significant difference between ecotality and, and Coulomb in terms of the charging and where it's going to be, where you think the, bit, the market's going to take off? Well, Coulomb also received a uh, federal government grant of uh, many millions of dollars to provide free charging stations, infra- uh, build-out infrastructure in certain metropolitan areas. Uh, I think that uh, we have selected or have been assigned different territories than the EV project. So our uh, project is called ChargePoint America. Mm-hmm. So different metropolitan areas to, uh, I think, to try and achieve as, as much of uh, penetration as we can into the market in select areas. Okay, so the government's seeding some money to try to get some of the basic pipes and foundation in place so this this market can take off. Jay Friedland, uh, you're part of an organization that I know uh, is part of uh, rabid, and I say that lovingly, uh, fanatical EV enthusiasts. But do you think there's some hype uh, around all of this? The president said a million cars by 2015. We've heard some auto companies say maybe not going to happen. Well, I think, um, again, you know, and Plug in America is a nonprofit. We represent consumers. Right now, today, there's a small number of consumers, a few thousand. But we think that in the future, there will be those millions of consumers. And um, I think that when you look at the auto companies are going to sandbag. The auto companies are going to delay um, and say, well, no, we can't make those numbers. And they're going to wait as long as they possibly can. Um, that, they're going to do that because the they're making many. They're, I mean, you look at Toyota. You know, Toyota's making making a lot of money on hybrids. So their impetus to move to EVs is not quite so strong. On the other hand, if you had you know, Nissan you know, talking to you, Nissan would be telling you, we're going to hit that million number. So I think, I think that there are different perspectives of different automakers. And there really are a lot of things that have to come together to make that happen. But there have been a lot of bets that have been placed in the right places. And so Nissan... Not so much on hybrids. They've, they've kind of gone all electric, and Toyota's got more of a hybrid franchise and some other car companies in different places. Uh, let's talk about the business model. I mean, for charging, you're basically buying electricity from a utility and then, and then reselling it. So how are the economics of that going to work uh, in terms of powering cars, either for, for Jay or Mike, well, John or Mike? We, as a company, are not buying the electricity. We... Um, provide the infrastructure to a series of hosts. The host could be a city. It could be a corporation providing charging for their employees as an amenity or a perk. Uh, it could be the landlord of a multi-unit uh, dwelling, a condominium complex or an apartment complex. Those hosts need to make their own decision. The developer of a mall, for example, will have to decide, will we be charging for this electricity or will we be giving it away? The owner of a McDonald's franchise might decide to put a fast charger outside their restaurant and give away a free charge with the purchase of a value meal. The city of San Francisco might decide, you know what, we're not able to do that. Electricity is cheap, but it's not free, so we're going to need to charge you for the convenience of charging in public. So there'll be a range of free parking, pay for the juice, free juice, pay for the parking, pay for the burger, free <laughs> burger, lots of different things, okay? That's what we're seeing. Fries yeah. thrown in there for three. Jonathan? Conversely, we're, we're looking at a business model where uh, the, the, we believe we have to be sustainable without government money down the road. There is no government money uh, we see in the long term for building out of infrastructure. Um, and that the, the charge inf- infrastructure has to be self-sustainable. We have a a four-legged stool of revenue that we see in our company. Number one is the sale and the installation of the charging. Number two is running a subscription model, very much like a Costco model, where you pay for an annual one-time subscription fee and then pay for your your, uh, usage as you you use it. Uh, The third leg of our our model is an advertising and media model. Uh, We're in touch with the customer. We're in touch with them visually every time they they reach to one of our touchpoint chargers. Uh, we're in touch with them through their iPhones and through their uh, web portals. Uh, and we're even moving into home energy devices so that we're in touch with you in your home. Advertising is very much a part of our view on how to pay for this inf- infrastructure. And the fourth one is through an aggregation model and a utility interface model where we work very closely with the utilities to help build out an infrastructure that's incredibly smart that reduces the liability for the utilities. This is a whole different relationship for car companies to their customers, and they're concerned 
about other people getting in between uh, the car companies and their customers, whether it's an electric company or a service company like Coolum or Ecotality. Uh, how's that playing out, that tension, you know, or Google getting involved? There's a whole different customer relationship happening here if this takes off. Well, I think one of the things that, that we're definitely seeing is that for the last hundred years, as we've had a dependence on fossil fuel-based, petroleum-based fuels, the car companies have lost touch with their customers because they're not the ones that are providing the fuel. That's the oil companies. It's the Exxons, the Chevrons, the Texacos of the world. So this is the paradigm that has existed. It's the one that we currently find ourselves in. I think the car companies see a golden opportunity to reset that paradigm and become more uh, sustainably connected to their customers. And I think they're looking for ways to do that. Greg, I'd like to Jeffrey. add, I think there's one thing that's really important that everyone understands about electric vehicles, which is that right now, you know, we're in California here, we're paying $4 a gallon for gasoline. But um, the equivalent cost of the electricity to go into my car, and I've driven my car for, you know, for 10 years, I've got 80,000 miles on my car, I drive it every day. It's an electric car. It's in a fully electric car, Toyota RAV4 EV. Um, but that car, it probably costs about 75 cents equivalent a gallon to, to do it. So it's a factor of better, it's almost five, a little more than five now. You know, I, I'm used to gasoline being $3 a gallon, so it would be factor four. And I think that one of the key things is as the um, new service providers come into place, that we see a model that, you know, part of the reason why my electricity is so cheap is I charge at home, I charge overnight. And so in that sense, I'm actually helping the grid. We don't need new power plants. We don't need to uh, add a lot of additional capacity because that's off-peak capacity that the, the utilities really want us to use. So there's a, a, a real benefit to trying to look at how that information can get to consumers so that consumers can see that electricity is a cheaper way so that their total cost of ownership goes down as well. Um, and I think that that's very important. There's a tremendous though communications and marketing challenge because people are so can, uh, accustomed to miles per gallon, and now you're talking a whole different language. Whether and you have to not only convert you know cents per mile or that sort of thing, but also to think about all the, the variable pricing of night and daytime charging. That's a big hurdle for consumers. It isn't to get their mind around. The Chevy Volt came out and they first said 230 miles a gallon. And that didn't last very long. And now uh, it's the EPA said, actually, I think it's 60 miles per gallon when they blend some of the use of the uh, gasoline-powered engine and the an electric engine. So how are you dealing with that complexity of a whole new measurement with consumers that's something so new? Well, I think that in some way, I mean, you can look at, there's a lot of different models in terms of that. But, but I think people do understand that electricity is less expensive. I mean, they get the, 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 the qualitative version. And cleaner. Yeah. And cleaner. And, 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 and one of the other things I love about my car is my car has gotten, every year that I've had it, over the last 10 years, it's gotten better. It's gotten cleaner. It's gotten more sustainable because there's more renewable power on the grid. And there's a phenomenal um, uh, synergy between people putting uh, photovoltaics on their roof, you know, putting uh, solar panels on their roofs, because w either what happens is they get solar and they go, how can I... Use, use more electricity to do something, oh, I'll get an electric car. Or they get an electric car and they go, I don't want to pay the utilities anymore. And so I think that, and, and this is also where the, the charging companies can come to play because as they put in uh, you know, charging, public charging and charging locations, they can add solar, they can add more renewables to the grid so that they're continuing to improve that and we get less carbon. It's, it's just a it's very, very virtuous cycle, or can be. Jay Friedland is the legislative director at Plug in America. We're talking about electric vehicles at Climate One. Did anyone else want to, uh, Jonathan, read? Yeah, basically, I, I think that Better Place, while I disagree completely with their battery swapping concept, has done a wonderful job of helping people focus on, on cost of use. So you look at the total aggregate cost of using your vehicle, and you look at things that are reduced in a pure electric uh, vehicle, such as oil changes and service costs. And if you look at... Uh, uh, the better place model, that's where they're focusing, is they're driving people to, to look at the total cost per mile of running that vehicle. Because one of the little dirty secrets of the auto industry is they make more money on fixing the car than selling the car, right? So it's that, and that's where you're going after them, uh, better place, because uh, people don't have to pay for that, or less for that, uh, that, that service is priced differently. Right, I mean, the the... Maintenance requirements of all EVs are going to be far less than, than any ICE car, uh, internal combustion engine car. Um, so that's not unique to Better Place. But to uh, address the, 
the customer issue or the charging issue, Better Place's philosophy there is that, again, we, we sell miles. Um, and so the, the whole idea is that the customer, the driver, should never have to think about kilowatt hours and they should never have to sort of plan or have a timer on their charge spot to turn it on. And we want to take all that decision making from downstream to upstream. And so what we do is we have a central control center where we can see in real time um, the connections of the cars to the grid. And we can manage those in aggregate so that it's the cheapest for, uh, for the cost input of the electricity, which also matches up to when it is best to charge for the utility. Um, and with an aggregated pool of, uh, of an EV network of batteries, we can actually tr- treat it somewhat like an en- a distributed energy storage resource, um, tailoring the, the patterns of the charging so that it matches renewable energy production so that we can actually make the grid a more accommodating place for renewable energy. Um, it's actually the thing that motivates me on a day-to-day basis is you know, electric vehicles ha- have the promise of taking cars off oil, and electric vehicle batteries have the promise of making the grid more renewable. So as far as a sort of uh, a clean tech solution that spans a lot of different sectors of the, of the clean tech industry, electric vehicles are really powerful. Rob Bierman is director of Global Energy Alliance at Better Place. Um, so the Better Place model challenges a lot of the conventions in the auto industry. How many, which specific auto makers have committed to build a car using this model? One has committed to building the car, and that's Renault. Um, and we have uh, we have an MOU with Cherry in China. Member of a memorandum of understanding. Yes. So we're we're working on a, a production plan with with Cherry. Um, and we have business development activities ongoing with all of the automakers. But you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's challenging. Um, the, the cost of building a switchable battery electric car versus a fixed battery electric car is actually not significantly different. Um, the, the cost of uh, investing in R&D or, or engineering to, to, to make the model of that car and, and to build the production line, that's a significant cost. Um, but you know, if you're t- trying to, if you're a car company and you're trying to decide what kind of car to build, you're going to have to do that research in either case. But I think it actually goes back to an issue we were talking about before, which is the car maker's connection to the driver. Um, you know, it was pointed out that you know currently the paradigm is you know the customer is actually you could say it belongs to Exxon or Chevron, um, and the car makers I think want to reverse that. The, the margins of selling a car are small. The margins of selling, producing and refining and selling gas are big, and they want to get those margins back. Honestly, better place is going after those same margins. Um, and so w- what we hope is that we can prove to the automakers that you'll sell more cars if it's switchable um, because it's just going to be much more convenient, and that's going to be the, the driver. I had, dinner, I had dinner with Bill Ford about three weeks ago, and he remarked that... Um, it's been 120 years since the, elect- since the automotive uh, industry has agreed on a unitary part, and that's the J1772 plug, except for the fact that they agreed the wheel should be round. Mm-hmm. There's never been a unitary part. Every car manufacturer views their batteries as their secret sauce. Everyone's buying their own battery company. Each configuration is different. An F Ford 150 truck, which is going to be coming out, Electric is going to have a different battery configuration than than the Ford Focus, and so that's going to cause I, I think the sw- interchangeability between car manufacturers is is a fallacious um, attempt to to herd cats. I just don't think you're ever going to see it because they don't they want to make their own things their own way, and Absolutely. they're not going to make Ford doesn't want to make the battery the same way GM and Chrysler et cetera does. Yeah, so. Um I guess two comments. First of all, Better Place is actually very committed to, to standards. So any car, any Better Place car that was sold in the U.S. will, will adhere to the J1772 plugging standard. So that, that's a standard for what the plug looks like that goes in the goes wall. In the car. Right. So, so we're not going to have this. Europe is, uh, UK is one and Japan is another and U.S. is oh, you another. Will. Well, you will, but it, it, <laughs> but it, but at least, at least by region, it'll, it'll, there'll be one standard. So or there's by car be, manufacturer. Okay. There's going to be a European standard, a U.S. standard, and probably a different standard in Japan. Um, but, you know, in, in each of those geographies, you know, Better Place will, will adhere to the, to the standard. Uh, that's for plugging, and also Better Place charge spots will be able to accept a plug from uh, a Nissan Leaf, a, a car that's not a switchable car, um, and you know we'll do like a, a key fob pay as you go for for a charging plan, much like Ecotality will. Um, I think the, the the larger issue is directed towards the the battery uh, switching issue, 
Um, and on that front, we're actually not asking car, car makers to standardize the shape of the battery or the chemistry of the battery. Uh, the, every, every decision about the battery it belongs to the car makers, and, and we can actually uh, be flexible on that front. Um, our switch stations store batteries in a very generic um, box-like shape. It's, it's any battery can fit into the storage bin. The thing we're actually just trying to standardize is the connection between the battery to the high uh, to the high voltage DC charger, um, and so that is where we'd like to see standardization. We're making we're making progress on that front. The form factor is is not an issue. Uh- Better Place started out thinking that they would be involved in building these swapping stations and that, and that entrepreneurs and gas stations would sell gasoline in one part of the station and then you could go swap your battery somewhere else. That's evolved over time. And now I think General Electric, you kind of brought in General Electric to do that part of the business uh, because it's complicated and very expensive. Uh, well, not exactly. GE is going to um, integrate. We're, we're working with GE to, to make their Watt station compatible with the Better Place network. And uh, eventually, I could see GE just manufacturing all of our charge spots. Right now, we make our own charge spots. There's no reason why why we need to do that. We can buy them from these guys. We can buy them from GE. Um, on the switch station front, though, uh, it, it is still a great opportunity for gas retailers to expand their business because retailers don't really make money on selling gas. They make money at the convenience store. So actually, in Israel, one of our main deployment partners is um, one of the four biggest gas retailers. They are going to help us install switching stations at those locations uh, to drive more traffic to their retail store for chips and coffee. Uh, Rob Beerman's with Better Place. You mentioned margins earlier. I'd like to get back to the question of margins on electricity. How much are you guys going to, or the, whoever the hosts are, they're going to be buying whatever, say, five, ten cents a kilowatt hour. They're going to be selling it for much more. It sounds like this could be a pretty good margin business. Well, it could be, although the California Public Utility Commission reminds us all the time that it is against the law to sell electricity at a markup if you're not a licensed utility. So you need to find a different um Pricing model, the hosts selling a flat rate charging session rather than selling kilowatt hours of electricity is going to allow them to conform or, or avoid running afoul of any regulations. But, but we have a natural built-in arbitrage situation where you're, you're always going to be in public charging comparing back to the cost of your home charge. Which is the cheapest. Which is the absolutely cheapest. And with smart charging in the home, we're actually looking at working with the utilities and driving the rate down even lower by having real-time charging rates directly communicated. So you, we're looking at six and five cent uh, a kilowatt charging at nighttime to do exactly as Jay was saying, push that uh, renewable component as well as the utility side. So what we're looking at is we're always going to be competing between two lines: home charging and the price of gas. And some and the consumers always going to be making value judgments in between there. And it's our job as as private sector entrepreneurs to figure out what is the tipping point. Where will people no longer charge publicly and say, hell, this is getting as costly as gas, or stop charging publicly and just charge at home? So there is that, the, the two set points that we have to work between. Although, I'll, yeah, so I'll also add, though, that I think that it's going to be very interesting because while the charging companies will be able to arbitrage a little bit or their customers who are actually, you know, providing electricity, uh, consumers are going to have very powerful new tools because, you know, for example, if anybody who has an iPhone, there's a program called Gas Buddy. And what Gas mm-hmm. Buddy does is it basically tells you where's the cheapest gasoline. Well, you're going to have the same capability overlaid on top of all these charging maps. Charging maps, you'll have them, and it'll say, oh, well, I can park over at AT AT&T Park over here, and it's going to cost me $20, but I can get a charge. Or if I park at Costco, I can get a free charge. And so I think what's going to happen is that the consumers are going to arbitrage public charging as well. And and then you're going to walk out with 20 pounds of beef and all sorts of other stuff, and that's going <laughs> yeah, to yeah. But I, I saved 20 bucks on my charging. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. Yeah, well, the hamburgers taste Same good. I'd, I'd like to comment on that sure. too, if I may. First of all, I, I, I always think it's amazing how how much inconvenience uh, someone will tolerate for a two cent difference in the per, per gallon of gas. Um, it, what Better Place is trying to do is just alleviate that whole stress on the day-to-day basis by, you know, the, the Better Place subscription is a monthly payment, and the, after that, the driver never pays for charge. You can charge anywhere, and it's all covered in, in one monthly payment. The auto companies say that they don't think public charging is going to be that big a deal, that most people are going to charge at home, that public charging is expensive, it takes a long time to get permitted, uh, that government it will be slow to deploy 
Uh, you're in that business. Do you think that you share that view or not? Well, uh, many of the car manufacturers you speak to speak with have never built a pure electric vehicle. Uh, if you speak to Nissan and the folks that are really putting out pure electric vehicles, uh, battery-only vehicles, they believe that public charging is an absolute necessity. And the range anxiety issue that's continually raised is one that uh, can only be answered by a frequency and, and a sort of plethora of charge-out stations. So I think that um, consumers will be comfortable with um, heavy charge infrastructure and is an absolute necessity. If they want it to be out there, they may not use it all that much, but they, they, they you hope they do use it a lot, but that, that people want it to, to know it's out there if they need it. That's Why absolutely right. And uh, to, to build on Jonathan's point, I think that um, the car companies don't have any control or, or don't want to really be in the business of maintaining a public charging infrastructure. I think they believe that for 80 or 90% of American drivers, charging at home while they sleep will be enough. But to combat range anxiety, whether it's real or imagined, the bottom line is seeing chargers out in public uh, will help to alleviate that, number one. And I think, number two, Coulomb believes that most drivers will leave their house in the morning with a fully charged vehicle. However, there are 250 million private vehicles in this country, but there are only 50 million garages. So if I'm doing the math right, that means that something along the order of 80% of vehicles do not park in a garage at night. If you're in San Francisco, if you live in San Francisco, the chances of you having a one- or two-car garage to yourself that you could plug into very, very low. You're either parking on the street or you might have an assigned spot in a below-ground garage, but the chances of you having access to a plug within 10 feet of your parking space is almost nil. You would actually have to install a home charging station uh, like Coulomb CT500 or, or one of the home charging stations that are out there or arrange through your landlord to be able to wire up an outlet and then somehow figure out a way to pay for it. So there are a lot of challenges that are involved. Mike Tanucci is Vice President, Coulomb Technologies. We're also discussing electric vehicles with Rob Bierman from Better Place, Jay Friedland from Plug in America, and Jonathan Reed from Ecotality. I'm Greg Dalton. Does someone else want to? Well, I was just going to add. So I think it's interesting. I mean, if you look at at what the car companies are saying there, in, in, and what I think um, uh, Dan Sperling from the California Air Resources Board has said over and over again, the primary place that people are going to charge, and again, I've driven an electric car for 10 years. I can tell you where I charge. I charge at home. There was a, a limited amount of public infrastructure. I wanted more public infrastructure. More public infrastructure would have allowed me to make more trips on electricity. And so that's a good thing. Um, and what we need to do is, is to find a balance. I think that what you're going to see is it's going to be, there's going to be home charging, there's going to be um, uh, workplace charging, I think it's going to become very, very popular. You know, we've talked to major companies recently who all are looking, they're getting a strong interest from their uh, employees and they want to be able to charge when they get to work. And again, you want to do some clever things in terms of making sure that electricity comes, say, early in the morning and not in the middle of the afternoon during peak. And then, um, and then I think public charging, you know, for example, um, a trip that I do constantly is I go from Santa Cruz, where I live, to San Francisco Airport. Because uh, I'm flying, you know, uh, to Asia or I'm flying to Europe or I'm flying to the East Coast. And um, so I will park and there's public charging and I will drive my car there. It's 62 miles. I know exactly how long it takes. Mm-hmm. I plug in. When I get back, I'm fully charged and I drive home. I could not do that trip without public charging. But some would say uh, that when you go on a 10-day or week trip to Asia, you're hogging that spot for a week and someone else can't get in there. And, and I absolutely agree with you, and, and maybe we'll have a rousing discussion on this, but, but I think that what we need is a mixture of different kinds of charging. I mean, there's uh, we've talked about DC fast charging or level three, which gives you uh, 80% of charge in less than half an hour. There's level two charging, which would charge something like a Nissan Leaf in about eight hours uh, to full. And again, remember, we're not often draining these cars to the end. So we figured that that's probably about an average of a four-hour charge. But um, in my case, I could easily charge on a level one 110 plug. And so what Plug in America would love to see is lots of 110. It makes sense to have level two. It makes sense to have level three in traffic corridors. But level one at workplaces, at uh, places like airports, places where your car sleeps. I think I like to think of it as your car sleeps 
22 hours of the day, maybe 22 and a half hours of the day. That's a lot of time to be able to charge, and you can charge on a, on a little trickle. You don't need, and it, it helps the grid, and it, I think it provides a generally better, cheaper public benefit. We, we've been involved in every electric vehicle infrastructure program in the U.S., back to the EV1 days, and, and the Chrysler Epic and the Ford uh, Rev. And I can tell you there is a, a concept that, that is being proven now in Japan of the topping off mentality. People are, just like when you go home, I bet 90% of the people here plug their phone in whether they can make it through the next day or not. People top off. It's become part of our, our culture almost. And you're going to see, you're going to see these, these chargers being sponsored, as Mike says, in, in, by the, uh, uh, they're going to be viral in retail environments. So people are going to go to Walmart and they're going to plug in and top off. And they're going to take advantage of the opportunities that exist. And people actually, where there's a, a heavy preponderance of charge infrastructure, tend to run the vehicles down lower. And so, I, I actually I, I, t- I disagree because um, go go back to the cell phone analogy. Sure, you park in, you you plug in uh, overnight every night, but uh, you know we used to have car chargers for our cell phones, and everybody had one, and you couldn't you couldn't not have one because you're always afraid that the the battery was going to run out, and, and they would because they were worse batteries. Um, now we can we, we let our batteries drain farther. Uh, we, we we definitely charge overnight, but uh, we become more comfortable uh, with with lower levels of charge, and we also have better batteries. And I think the same thing will happen in EVs. We we'll charge overnight. We we, we won't top off when we pull into Walmart. We're going in there for 30 minutes. We're not going to care. We have 80% charge in our battery. We know we can get back to work. It's it's not a big deal. Well, oh, and not everyone's going to do it the same way. I mean, yeah. 250 million people, 300 million people, we're going to do it do it in different ways. Let's talk about uh, smart meters. Uh, how are they essential to have smart meter deployment before these sorts of things uh, can take place? Otherwise, people can plug it in their garage and they're not going to be able to know how much they're paying to juice up their com- car compared to the other use at home. Mike Danucci? Well, we we agree with that. Uh, we also strongly believe that there's an absolute requirement for uh, a networking or a wireless interaction between driver and station, driver and car, uh, you're going to accomplish that communication and that conversation via your uh, smartphone, your iPhone, your BlackBerry, your Android, or through your uh, laptop computer, your iPad, or any other type of uh, wireless device. So w- we strenuously believe that it needs to be an open infrastructure, an open uh, network. So our ChargePoint uh, network, which has been deployed since late 2008, uh, does provide an open ar- architecture, open APIs, and it is going to integrate with the idea of a, a smart grid. The, the utilities need to provide the other end of that handshake, however, and I think what we're seeing is the utilities are definitely uh, interested, but they're not the most proactive folks in the world, and, and they seem to be taking very much of a wait-and-see attitude until the cars build up enough of a critical mass on the road that it starts to affect the uh, the actual grid loader or maybe starts to, to threaten with some sort of a, an event, some sort of a peak event on a utility, that will get their attention. But until then, I think they're sort of taking a wait-and-see attitude. So okay. someone can buy an electric car and plug it in, and they don't need a smart meter. But if they have a smart meter, they'll get more information about... Absolutely. Uh, okay. John, well, one of the major problems we're seeing out there, though, is electric vehicle manufacturers right now are trying to sell consumers the cheapest possible charger. And in most cases, these are dumb chargers that don't have any telecommunications in them, don't have the ability to communicate with the utilities. And if the utilities don't start moving proactively and immediately, we're going to see a preponderance of of garages filled with these dumb chargers that don't have the the ability to communicate. Um, Our charger is a Swiss Army knife of telecommunications. We we can communicate through AMI. We can communicate through uh, CDMA and and, uh, directly up to our, our network. So we can allow our chargers network, very much like Coulomb, our network can communicate with the utilities network without even going through a smart meter if you're in communities where there's no smart meters. But these dumb chargers where people come home, and I call them lovingly dumb chargers because they they open the door for us to win, um, they're going to come home and plug in at 5 o'clock and and add to the grid load. Bad move. And the utilities don't want it. And so we really need to push both the car manufacturers and the, uh, the utilities 
to make sure that this starts right. I'm, so I'm going to respectfully disagree with Jonathan on this. Uh, I've had a dumb charger, and sorry if I keep saying this, for 10 years. And I know that my electricity is cheaper after midnight. And all the cars now have the capability, you, again, you pop open your iPhone app and you say, charge starting at midnight. I mean, it's, it's about that simple to be able to do. And then you look at a company like NRG, which is the big energy company in, in Houston. They're talking about having all-you-can-eat electricity for, uh, for an electric vehicle. And you just pay, you know, it's very similar, actually, in some ways to the Better Place model. Where I would argue that what you want is something different. You want nights and weekends, you know, to follow the cell phone analogy all the way through, where there's one price to charge during the day and, and another, you know, in essence, much less expensive to charge uh, on the weekends. But I think that the concept of dumb versus smart, I mean, if somebody has, I mean, that would argue that we need uh, to have smart dryers and smart refrigerators and smart furnaces and I think that really where we're going to get to, or smart hot tubs, you know, actually our hot tub is smart. It has a timer on it. So there, there, are, there are differences in dumb. And I think but that you can do different things. A car charger represents almost 2.3 house loads. That's wrong. That's not That's true. Right. I know what my electricity is. Every month, my electricity bill, it's about 300 to 350 kilowatt 6. hours. 6.6 kilowatt hours when you plug in. And the average house load is 2.3. Mm-hmm. It's so you, energy, it's the power. It's the power. And so this is a huge drain on the grid. It's a huge impact on the grid. And, and so unless we handle that, we're going, you're going to end up paying through the utilities huge costs. So I, I, I argue to my death that smart charging is an imperative. And, for instance, the NRG model where, you're, where they're talking about all you can charge, well, that's predicated on the concept that only skinny people go to the buffet. People are going to start charging when they want to charge now at, at peak time. So I think that that all-you-can-eat um, concept is is really flawed as well. Yeah, no, I just I, I mean I agree with you in the sense that that I, I think that all-you-can-eat is not the right way to go because it doesn't shift. But I think that consumers uh, one of the things that we keep talking about is is insulating consumers from things. It turns out when people get electric vehicles. And let's even go beyond electric vehicles. Millions of people now have Priuses. What do they spend their time doing? They spend their time looking at that little screen on their Prius and optimizing their, uh, you know, their range and getting those little, those little uh, bonuses. And I would argue that EV, EV consumers are inherently smarter. No, no, I shouldn't argue that. But I should argue that, that EV consumers, EV consumers will certainly get the pricing signal that comes from the utility, which is if I, if I get a bill and my bill is high because I've been charging during the daytime and I know that I can get cheap electricity at night, I'm going to go with the cheap electricity. But we're early adopters will do that. But the early adopters won't do that. We're working with utilities right now with programs where the utility is going to ask you to opt into a program that they can control the time of charge. And, and that they're going to come in and charge you. At you think Americans want to surrender that to uh, to their? Might be a good thing, might be a bad thing. Absolutely, you're going to have an over. You can have an override on it if you if you don't. The major criteria is full charge by 6 a.m. And this is going to allow the utilities even more ability to influence and, and control their capital costs. For um, Duke Energy said, if we don't do something about this, every community in our older communities are going to have transformers a popping. And so, I mean, there is great fear out there. So, okay, so I actually, when I was in college, I actually worked and did load and voltage for Florida Power and Light. And so I actually went out and looked at loads. And I can tell you that an air conditioner is a larger load. A hot tub is a larger load. A plasma, if you have a plasma TV on... That's a very large load. So, so we have many, many loads, which goes back to your smart metering concept. But I think that, that there is really, the utilities are sort of promulgating this idea that putting an EV on, um, you know, uh, in your house is gonna be, you're, you're right in the sense that from a load standpoint, it's high. But again, you can manage that load in different ways. And so I think that, I, I really think that this is a little bit of a red herring. I think we actually all agree that you need to manage the load somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. either just with a simple timer or with a, you know, a, a charge spot that has some centralized connect, that connects to some centralized manager that, that manages the load. Um, but one point that Jonathan made is that you don't actually need a smart, a smart meter to do that um, in, in either of those cases. Mm-hmm. Rob Beerman is with a Better Place. We've also been hearing from Jay Friedland, Legislative Director at Plug in America, Jonathan Reed, CEO of Ecotality, and Mike DiNucci, VP at Coulomb Technologies. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, 
a lot of what you're doing is going after the business of the oil companies. Are they just sitting by and watching this happen, or are they trying to play defense, or do they think, as some people have suggested, that EVs will, electric vehicles, will roll out so slowly and global petroleum demand is growing that they don't have to worry about this? Well, an interesting Mike thing is happening right now. Um, the oil companies have, the oil and gas companies have started referring to themselves as energy companies. Right. They're not so interested in being oil and gas companies anymore as they are being global energy providers. And they're looking for any type of energy, no matter what that might be. They're going to follow the dollar. Um, and the bottom line is, you know, somebody like Jay, who has been driving an electric vehicle for a decade, in other words, Jay was EV before EV was cool. <laughs> but with all respect, Jay's not the customer. Jay's the earliest of early adopters. He saw this before anybody else did. But the bottom line is Nissan and Exxon and Chevron and Toyota and GM are not going to pay attention until the average housewife in Iowa, for example, gets interested in electric vehicles. That's really where the market has to get to in order for us to build up enough volume to make this a viable business. And right now, we've been using a cell phone uh, metaphor Let's stay with that metaphor for a second. I would say that we are in the gestational stage of this industry right now, and I would compare uh, where we are today, where the cell phone industry was in maybe 1987. The big brick phones, four dollars a minute. Yeah. Big, you know, large whippy rubber <laughs> antennas. Cell phones don't even have antennas anymore, and you short certainly couldn't. Batteries. You, you short life batteries, and you better not charge it until you've drained it all the way down because then it'll remember that setting and you've got half the battery that you used to have. And then the last thing is you had to stay very, very still while you made a phone call. There certainly was no driving and talking at the same time. It took 10 or 15 years before that that uh, industry matured. And, and, and McKinsey famously way underestimated the adoption of cell phones. They didn't anticipate, thought it would be a tiny market and it exploded. So it gets to the Node Coastal and others who make the point about predicting uh, market adoption of uh, consumer electronics. Well, and, and one more point that I'd like to make about that, Jonathan mentioned having dinner with Bill Ford. Well, Bill's great-great-grandfather, Henry Ford, they initially, you know, after he changed the entire world, and we all know Henry Ford didn't invent the automobile. What he invented was the assembly line. That was his huge contribution. When people asked him years later, how did you know to do that? How did you know that that's the way the direction of the industry was going to go as opposed to hand-built horseless carriages? His famous quote was, if I had asked the public what they wanted, I would have built a faster horse. So a lot of times you can't necessarily wait or predict or, or let the, the uh, public tell you which way it's going to go. You need to, as Mitsubishi did, set a very ambitious goal and not really figure out until you get there how you're going to get there. So for, further answer to your question about the oil companies, um, we were the first ones that have been invited to, first time electric vehicles have been invited to the table with big oil. We're partners with BP. We're rolling out fast chargers in BP and ARCO stations up and down highways in Tennessee, in California, in Washington, and Oregon. Um, so they recognize 90% of, uh, of gas stations are franchisees of big oil. Um, 80% of their revenue comes from the C-Store. Uh, so so if, they make more money selling donuts than they yeah. Slurpees yeah. and hot dogs, boy. That's yeah. that's their business, and yeah. they'd rather sit, they'd like to see you in there for a 15 minute charge. Exactly. That's <laughs> a really that's a really interesting point because you're traveling down a highway and you stop at the convenience store and get your fast charge. It makes a tremendous amount of sense, um, and and I really think that you the the, um, the purveyors the you know the gas stations for for that are going to want you there longer. And by the way, we're going to see Starbucks there or we're going to see a yep. McDonald's or you know, so think about places where you spend half an hour. That's where you're going to charge in a fast charge. And it doesn't matter they can make little or no money on electricity because they're going to get you in the store on higher margin products. But we're going to do more than that. We've got 42-inch screens there that are going to advertise that Slurpee inside and drag you inside. We're going to advertise other media models on that and we're going to be sharing that media income with the uh, franchisees. It's all about building a recurring revenue base for uh, this infrastructure that's not reliant on reselling electricity. It drives me crazy when I go to Shell stations and those video things start yapping mm -hmm. at me. I, Although I one of my favorite ones, I pulled, in, I pulled into a Chevron station. But if your energy station, costs nothing. I pulled into a Chevron station uh, not too long ago to get a lottery ticket, um, which is all I have to do with my car. And there were little signs there for Coda, for Coda Automotive, an all-electric vehicle. The, they were advertising at a gas station. So... <laughs> 
you know, who knows what's going to happen. We're discussing electric vehicles at Climate One with Jay Friedland, Mike DiNucci, Rob Bierman, and Jonathan Reed. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we will pause now. For, I'm going to ask one more question, and we'll put the microphone out here again and invite you to come around uh, from this side of the room. Please come around that way, and we'll get the mic out here, and we'll do audience questions. Um, and But before we get that, the mic, uh, thanks, Stephen. Uh, Jay Friedland, you cringe when the president talks about EVs. Why? Well, I think that one of the one of the issues that we have. I, I mean, I think that that uh, President Obama has done a tremendous amount of of work, and as I think I said earlier, uh, putting down the markers in terms of what we need. Uh, you know, whether it's charging infrastructure, whether it's tax credits, um, uh, t- uh, credits for an individual, tax credit for an individual to put a charging station in their in their home garage. Um, one of the the issues that's really come up is now that we're so polarized. We are running into this thing where if you claim that an issue is bipartisan, you have the chance of, of losing that issue. And so one of the things that we want to do is really encourage that bipartisan uh, work. And whether it's, it's increasing the uh, current limit on the number of automobiles that are covered by the tax credit or converting, uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow has a bill up right now that would make the EV tax credit much more like cash for clunkers, where you'd go in and buy a car and you'd immediately get that uh, cash on the hood. Cash on the hood, and cash on the hood makes a difference, particularly as we're trying to get more and more consumer adoption. So we're working hard to try and do that. So we love what the president's doing, but we also want members of Congress to stand up as well. Uh, there's also the EV Deployment Act, which is a plug-in incentive of two thousand dollars in addition to the incentives already there uh, in ten U.S. communities around the world. It's backed by Jay McNerney and Anna Eshoo, two Congress members from here. Is that something you all support? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And in addition to that, there's also uh, the federal tax credit, uh, tax credit 8911, that uh, any company or, or federal tax-paying entity can claim a tax credit on their uh, electric vehicle infrastructure. So if you're buying uh, refueling equipment for alternative fuel vehicles, which in this case the alternative fuel is elect- electricity, then you can uh, get a tax credit on that as well. So the, char- the price of the charging comes down. Let's Audience question, please. Hi, Wendy Lee. Uh, like Jay, I'm also an EV driver for over 10 years. My car's charging now. Uh, this question is for uh, Equality. Um, I recently had a Blink installed on my garage, uh, and and it is a power hawker. It uh, draw 50 watts, 49.14 to be exact. So that equates to 36 kilowatt hour per month. And it's also equate to 700 miles I could drive <laughs> on the road. So I want to ask uh, how Equality is going to handle this in the future to reduce the power. Uh, I think we've already sent downloads to most of the, the equipment, and it had to do with backlighting. And we're making the backlighting a, um, a variable now of the charger. And so that download has been... One of the advantages of having a really strong network is that we're able to continually upgrade the software and make modifications. Yeah, um, so we. What what is the power after this upgrade? Um, this this is the the upgrade is going to allow you to turn the charger completely, the backlighting completely off, so it has almost a a negligible drain whatsoever. Thank you. Thank you. Let's have the uh, next audience question, please. Here at Climate One, we're talking about electric vehicles. Hello. Hi, I'm Fraser Murison-Smith, uh, founder of ElectroDrive. A uh, quick comment and, a, and then a question for Rob. So uh, back in the 02 to 04 time frame, I was a lessee of one of the Think City EVs that was, uh, was brought out, uh, supported by Ford. And I can agree with a lot of the things that were said about the, the range anxiety and, and, and the charging infrastructure and also with the, the consumer adoption that when I had to give the car back, because it was a demonstration program, I kind of felt like Charlton Heston, you know, out of my cold, dead hands type of thing, and I, and I really missed that car. I also think that uh, what Better Place is trying to do is incredibly ambitious and visionary, but my question is, for Rob is, what keeps Better Place awake at night? Um, phone calls from Shai in Israel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 11, <laughs> 2 a.m. conference calls. Um, what keeps us awake at night? Uh, I mean, there, there are a number of issues. I mean, right, as I mentioned, we go live in Israel in nine months. And so there's a big uh, onus on us to execute now. 
uh, and we're doing that, but you know there are constant you know bumps in the road that we have to that we have to deal with. So I mean, we spent the last three years developing a very robust uh, holistic solution, and we feel good about where we are on that development uh, roadmap now. And now it's about putting that putting that solution into play. Um, so, there, so there's executing on a day-by-day basis, installing the next battery switch station is one thing. And then, yeah, it, it, the, the automakers. We, we would love to have every automaker make a, a switchable battery EV. And so far, uh, we only have one. We're, we're working on getting more and more models, a, a wider a wider range of choices for EV drivers. So those, the, those are the two main things, I would say. Next audience question, please. Hi, my name is Tim McLaughlin. I'm with the Presidio Graduate School. Um, this afternoon, my team, who's in attendance, we're going to go over to the city of Berkeley and talk to the mayor about EV infrastructure over there. We know that one question he's going to ask is um, for the Berkeley population that doesn't have garages. Um, I guess this is for the charging station manufacturers. Is there a solution within the next two years to have uh, charging stations on the street or in the public right away for those without garages? We'll both answer this. You want to take it first, Jonathan? I'll, I'll say that. Um, Jonathan it, Reed. Yeah, uh, Jonathan. Yeah, um, we don't at Ecotality um, get involved in streetside charging. Uh, Coolum, on the other hand, is uh, extremely experienced in doing municipal streetside charging. We believe that the private sector locations uh, for this type of charging will succeed, um, and Coolum is doing a great job in, in terms of cities. So, um, one of the. Uh, one of the main focuses of uh, the ChargePoint America program is to try and seed as many uh, municipalities and county areas with charging stations, as many as they would like. Uh, so, as a matter of fact, within a few uh, few blocks of where we're sitting today, you'll see public street-side charging available, and it can be paid for with a credit card, with a Coulomb Charge Pass card, or just by calling the toll-free number on the front of the charging station. We have stations alongside uh, the Embarcadero by some of the piers, and actually charging stations numbers 2, 3, and 4, the very, very uh, earliest stations that were installed in early 2009 were installed right across the steps of uh, City Hall in San Francisco. So this is something that you are seeing. Um, I personally have met with uh, with folks at UC Berkeley and the city of Berkeley over the past couple of years. There's a tremendous amount of interest, especially in a green community such as that. Uh, there are solutions that are available. And there are other companies, too. General Electric has a uh, curbside. I don't know if it's really actually deployed yet, but they've announced their intention to go into curbside charging. Absolutely. I'll also add, there's, there's some very, very interesting, uh, you know, since uh, I've spent some time working with the folks at Coulomb on this, uh, one of the uh, interesting things about, again, having a network charger that's on the on the curbside is you can actually reserve the space. That's right. And reserving the space is a really, really interesting thing. We're seeing this with reservable parking meters, but um, but I think that as, as there's more wires running out to that curbside, it creates more opportunities. But, um, and the only other thing I, that I will add is, is uh, Plug in America has been working very actively in the legislature to make sure, for example, in certain kinds of multifamily dwellings, particularly condos, that the homeowners associations can't block you from installing a, a, a charger in, in a common space. So we're trying to make sure that we break down those barriers. And again, working with folks like Home and uh, Equitality and, and the like to try and make sure that those uh, kinds of barriers are, are knocked down. Now bite your tongue, Jay, because you can't do that with a dumb charger. The uh, reser- reservation can only be done using uh, well, I, using I, a wireless I, network. I, smart chargers and, in the public make a lot of sense. And the other in thing, my house, let them right into that right. trap. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the other thing, though, that I think it's important when you meet meet with your uh, city officials, have them do what they do best: legislate and then get out of the way. We need them to help do uh, speed. Um, install permits, building permittings, uh, parking regulations, and and they should focus on on the infrastructure side from a legislative point. Get out of the way. And and by the way, we have a bill up on that as well, um, which is um, uh, from Senator Christine Keogh down in San Diego, and it's basically streamlining the whole permitting process. In essence, like what you would do to go get a hot tub, right. you can get an EV charger. Because today, a lot of the municipalities don't know how to handle it. And so right. they go, well, I don't know, they scratch their heads and, they, and they're not able to do it. And in fact, we're really trying to even encourage internet permitting if it's possible. Because again, it's, it's an appliance at this point. When there's as many EV uh, charge, curb charging as hot tubs in California, I guess that's one uh, mm-hmm. point of That'd progress. Good, yeah. uh, uh, Jay Friedland is Legislative Director of Plug in America. We also have Mike DiNucci with Coolum Technologies. 
Rob Bierman from Better Place and Jonathan Reed from Ecotelli. Let's have another audience question, please. Hi, my name is John Kelb, and uh, I'm with Evolve Electric, and we're installing uh, chargers everywhere we can. Um, one of the comments that I frequently get is, uh, you know, EV it doesn't really save us energy because we're basically going on the nuclear side or we're just burning more coal. And a lot of customers are asking me, can I know that I'm actually using renewable energy in my EV, and I don't have an answer for them. What's yours? Uh, I guess I'll take that one. So, so two things that I'll, I'll do, I'll suggest you go to uh, pluginamerica.org. We have um, a compilation of all the studies. This is pretty much an argument that people have been saying, which is all we're doing is taking tailpipes and moving them to smokestacks. The reality is that uh, probably the best study was one done by uh, the Electric Power Research Institute, known as EPRI, along with the NRDC, the National Resources Defense Council, which said that even on the worst part of the grid, you know, somewhere in Indiana, Western Kentucky, West Virginia, you know, somewhere in that region, which has a lot of coal, it's uh, an electric vehicle is still twice as good in terms of, of carbon emissions than, um, uh, than even a gasoline vehicle. But more importantly, as I was mentioning before, if you start to get, uh, you know, if you have a customer that really wants that, have them put solar on their roof because then they're 100% renewable and they're charging their car on 100% renewable energy. And there is uh, no better argument for zero, zero, zero there. You know, zero emissions, you know, zero um, um, carbon. And they'll spend some zeros getting all that stuff. <laughs> but let's have the next audience question. Hi, my name is Jeff Swinerton. I'm with the Center for Resource Solutions. We're a renewable energy um, advocacy group. And, and um, of, of course, it is a whole lot more environmentally sustainable to drive a plug-in uh, than drive a car, um, but the the grid is still 50% coal. And of course, we have a we have a um, a clean mix in California. They're getting close to 20%, um, but that's not the case in the rest of the country. And it's so easy to buy renewable energy with buying uh, renewable energy certificates or signing up with a utility green power program. Are you guys uh, who are providing charging infrastructure working um, to provide customers with clean power? Um, or is any, do you know of anybody else in the industry that's working to pair um, electric vehicles with renewable energy? Well, um, Mike Tanucci. Coulomb worked very hard in the design of our product to make sure that we were essentially grid agnostic. We don't care where you're getting your power from. All we care is that the station is getting AC power. That could be from a wind turbine. It could be from solar panels. It could be from your local utility. It could be from a methane compost heap. We don't care where you're getting the AC power from. the And so it's really up to the host or the provider of the station to make the decision for themselves about how they want to um, provide that electricity to the drivers that would be using the stations. And the number one request that we get for any sort of post-sale alteration would be a um, solar integrated charging station. One of the things, we're working um, with over 150 utilities around the nation, and one of our focuses of using our network, the Blink network, is to um, allow the utilities to do exactly this, to fo- focus renewable energy. California, 80% of wind power is lost at, because it's generated at night. Shifting that load to nighttime means they're going to take take in much more of that wind power into their renewable portfolio. And while it may not be 100% of what you're, you're drawing, um, it's going to be significant. But aggregation and actually being able to identify uh, the, the green resources is something that many of the utilities want to do to en- enhance the uh, adoption of electric vehicles. And it's that interface with the utility that's going to be all important. We haven't touched on it much today. Yeah. One, one other thing I will add, in, in, in essence, a little bit contradicting myself, but but I think that one real advantage of smart charging, of, of having that, you know, moving toward the future, is as we get cars that are also smart and can do something called vehicle-to-grid or V2G, that means that you could actually, in essence, uh, you know, Rob was talking about this, where you could use the batteries as storage for the utilities. If we could do that, then we can make a, a cleaner, smarter grid by capturing all of those wind resources. That's not, that's not where we're at today. Today we're trying to get initial deployment of vehicles on the road, but, but very soon, we're going to be starting to get to those tipping points. I'd like to expand on that. Um, Bob Beerman with Better Place. Yeah. Thank you. First of all, Better Place's goal is to power all of our cars with renewable energy whenever we can. And since we pay all the electricity bills on behalf of all the drivers, we can do that pretty effectively by making commercial power purchase agreements, for example. But to expand on what Jay was saying, um, 
you know, the, one of the main challenges with integrating high percentages of renewable energy onto the grid is intermittency. You can't dispatch renewable generators like you can dispatch uh, conventional generators. Um, batteries are a, a perfect uh, counterweight to that problem. Uh, and with Better Places systems, since we actually can control a, the, the whole fleet of batteries centrally, we can shape the, the charging load to match that intermittency, to balance out the, the fluctuation in, in renewable generation. We can actually do that without V2G. Um, we can do it just by increasing or decreasing the network-wide rate of charging. Um, if we get to a point where cars are enabled with V2G, we can do it more effectively. We can do it to a, a higher degree. But even in the absence of V2G, not using any additional battery cycles, by the way, uh, so not degrading the battery at all, we can, we can tailor our charging curve to match renewable energy generation. And I think more than, more than just buying RECs or even making a commercial PPAs that finance a, a wind farm, I mean, those are powerful tools. But when you can control uh, a fleet of batteries and, and really make the entire grid a more accommodating place for renewable energy, that's really the most powerful thing, uh, the, the most powerful driver of, of new renewable installation. Next audience question, please. Yeah. My name is Roger Avery. I'm a professional engineer in California. I'm retired engineering manager of the subway system. Um, I'm listening to the discussion about putting charging stations down along the freeway, and then I have a terrifying picture, and it sounds facetious, but it's not meant to be, but it's funny, that every 40 miles I stop, buy a cup of coffee, because I've only got 40 miles range on my vehicle. If I want to drive down to L.A., it'll take me 24 hours or something ridiculous to get there. And I think this is something in this whole discussion that we need to address. Starbucks likes it, but no one else. So we, uh... Well, one thing that I would say is that, and, and oftentimes, um, especially in the in you know the last several years, you would hear people throw up objections to the idea of driving a plug-in vehicle by saying, "I drive too often, I drive too far, I can't drive an electric vehicle." In that case, then maybe doing what Jay does, which is you know having a fully plug-in vehicle, might not be, might not fit your lifestyle. You might want to go with a extended range plug-in vehicle or a plug-in hybrid vehicle, one of which I drove from our headquarters in Campbell to Chico, which was our very first uh, paying customer with Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Um, that was in early 2009. I drove a, a extended range plug-in hybrid vehicle from Campbell to Chico, which was 250 miles in each direction and back. In one day, 500 miles. Now, anybody who would object and say they drive too much, I would say, do you ever drive more than 500 miles in a day? Because I did it in a plug-in vehicle, and I used four gallons of gas. That's 125 miles to the gallon. So would a full battery-powered electric vehicle get you that far? Not on today's technology. Someday, someday soon, as the battery technology, the chemistry, and the density of batteries gets far, far better, instead of it being the size of a, a suitcase and taking you 100 miles that a Nissan Leaf battery would be, we're going to get to different battery chemistries, and you're going to see a battery that's the size of a dictionary that will take us three or 400 miles. The Chinese uh, battery manufacturers are already talking about those kinds of leaps in technology. When we get to that point, then the idea of having to stop every 40 miles will be quaint and antiquated. But for today, if you need uh, to, to drive to Lake Tahoe several times a winter, then you're probably going to need a plug-in hybrid rather than a battery-powered vehicle. Well, or, 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 or let, me, yeah. let me even add, uh, you know, one of my favorite stories is I was at an event in San Francisco, and someone, you know, and I've learned to ask this question, but, but basically someone came up and said, well, what if I want to go to Tahoe? And I've learned to ask, well, how often do you go to Tahoe? And it turned out the person said, well, I've never been to Tahoe. <laughs> and, and, it, and what it really brought home to me is that we have this concept, um, you know, and I think it's, it's pretty American, but it's, it's also just car consumer that of what I call aspirational trips. You buy a car for what you think is going to be the farthest you're ever going to drive it. Well, I think what we need to do is really change that model. So what I would much prefer to do is have my electric vehicle and join Zipcar or City Car Share. And when I need to make those three trips a year to Tahoe or, or uh, if I need to go down to LA and I'm going to drive, then I could take and just swap my car. And everybody's happy with that. So, I mean, I think that there are, there are uh, other paradigms that work where we don't we, have to be so ownership. We, we do advanced vehicle testing for the DOE, all their advanced vehicle testing. And we also consulting for most of the major auto manufacturers. And while we don't have a Moore's 
curve yet for batteries. We, it, it's coming, and we're seeing advances every day. And so, so I, what I see is a vision where some, somebody like a Better Place is going to offer a car that has two different two different battery configurations. All the vehicle companies are going to offer vehicles where 100 mile range and maybe a 200 mile range version of it, um, so that you can you can pay for your aspirations. If 100 miles is satisfactory, you're going to have a lower cost car and use public charging and your home charging. If you need that range, you pay for it. Last question. Hi, my name is Heather Barton, and again, um, I'm with PR and Company that's developing a public-private partnership for EV infrastructure in San Francisco. And I'd like to ask a very similar question that I asked in the last session about uh, what gaps do you see besides advertising in terms of public education around these issues? And also, whose responsibility do you see it as? Is it the EV tech companies? Is it government or some other entity. Well, it's definitely an education, uh, an educational process where we need to educate the public. You know, Jay's anecdote about uh, the driver that wanted to drive to Tahoe but had never been to Tahoe reminds me of a similar type of objection in a panel like this when I had a woman stand up and say, I would never put my children in an electric vehicle. And I said, why? She said, because I'd be worried that the battery would catch on fire. And I said, has your cell phone ever caught on fire? And she said, no. I said, would you, why would you worry that, that your battery in your vehicle would catch on fire? She said, I don't know. It seems like it would be flammable. And I couldn't help myself by, from saying, then it's really good that there's not a flammable liquid in your car today. <laughs> so I think a lot of times people will, they, they will, they will throw up objections without thinking about, you know, well, what if I ever did want to drive to Pasadena? Well, I don't know anybody there. But maybe I might someday. And that's fine. We need to be able to address it, and we need to be able to overcome these kinds of objections. The bottom line is, as I said before, we're in a very sort of nascent stage here in, in this industry. It's very young. It's very early. And everybody up on this stage wants exactly the same thing, which is for this industry to succeed. There's enough business for a dozen different companies to succeed. All the car companies are rooting for the others to simultaneously fall flat on their face but also succeed. We all, whether you're GM or Toyota, they want the Nissan LEAF to succeed because it's going to make things easier. The the Prius being a massive uh, game-changing tectonic hit in 2001, proving that hybrids became an additional sort of segment of the industry that didn't exist before, proved to all the car companies that low-emission and zero-emission vehicles were a segment that people were actually willing to open their wallet wide for. And that's why we're all here today. So it is an education process that will continue. Let's wrap it up real quickly. Jonathan Reed and then uh, Jay Friedland. Yeah, real, uh, real quickly, we in every one of the cities we go into, we do what's called an EV microclimate. And that, that is a study that we pull together all the stakeholders, the, the utilities, the state and local governments, and consumer groups. And we sit down and plan what the infrastructure is going to look like for that locale. I think that educational programs like that, where all the stakeholders, Plug in America participates with us in, in almost all of these. We're doing them for the Clinton Climate Initiative around the world. It's that type of education that gets the powers to be, the utilities and the state and local governments involved in it, and let them have ownership in it that's going to make it much easier for uh, the population to enjoy a, a robust uh, EV charge infrastructure. I'll keep mine really short. Um, signs. We need signs. <laughs> it, it turns out that if you drive through Vacaville, which is just north of, of San Francisco, as you drive down I-80, there's electric vehicle charging, electric vehicle charging, electric vehicle charging. Every time we do an installation, in fact, I've lately been saying wet, many, many more signs than chargers, <laughs> because what happens is people see the signs and they go, wow, oh, I could get an electric vehicle because I could charge over there, or I could charge over there, or I could charge over there. So it's really about moving that nudging, that perception. Rob Beerman, last word. Thank you. I would, I'm not involved in, in consumer-facing marketing, but my sense from what I've heard is that people are ready, especially in San Francisco. I think, I think if the infrastructure is there and the cars are uh, equivalent in convenience and cost, which they're getting to the point where they will be, people will buy them. And I think that's true not just in in San Francisco, but in, in many places around the world. So I'll end that with an optimistic note. Rob Bierman is Director of Global Energy Alliances at Better Place. We've also heard from Jay Friedland, Legislative Director of Plug in America, Jonathan Reed, CEO of Ecotality, and Mike DiNucci, Vice President of Strategic Accounts at Coulomb Technologies. I'm Greg Dalton with Climate One. Thank you all for coming, and thank you for listening on the radio. Jonathan, Good job. Good job. Enjoy it.